everybody. Who's glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Come on. Who's, it? Who's glad? All right. Hey, I want to welcome all of you who are with us, uh, whether you're at one of our six campuses or watching on the live stream. And I want to give a special welcome to our Statesboro campus, who's having their first Wednesday night service this week. Everybody, let's show some love to our Statesboro campus 50 miles away. Man, we love you guys. Love you, love you, love you. Now, to all of you, can I just say how glad I am that you're starting this year, you know, by making an effort to build your spiritual life through weekly worship. You know, when I went to the gym on Monday morning where I trained, uh, there was a new guy there. And the new guy was from our East Campus. And at the end of every one of our workouts, we pretty much do a, a meltdown on ab exercises. We do this super aggressive ab attack. And it feels like a thousand sit-ups of every evil imaginable kind which is why we call the gym the house of pain. Uh, but the truth is, when our coach tells us how many he wants, you know what? We just give it to him. And the reason is because we've been doing this for two or three years together now. And, and you know what? When he says do this, we just get it done. Uh, and that recovery time gets shorter and shorter every week because we've been at it for a while. Now, unfortunately, <laughs> because that coach is at the East Campus watching right now, I'm afraid of what's going to happen tomorrow morning. Easy, is it? Let's double that weight, fat man, and we'll find out what you got, all right? But I digress, all right? So, so on Monday morning, uh, we finished up about a half a dozen different versions of these weighted sit-ups, and the new guy said, man, I was barely able to get off the floor on that last set. And we all said, bro, that's exactly what it looked like when all of us started. But three months from now, man, if you stick with this, you'll be crushing this workout if you stick with this discipline. And friends, the same thing is true in your spiritual disciplines and the foundational discipline of the spiritual life is weekly worship. And so man, if you're here today and your heart is open at all, whether you've given your life to Jesus or not, you're gonna get wiser and you're gonna get spiritually stronger in this service. And that's gonna happen every time you come here. But just like working out, if you only come once a month, you know what? You're going to get sore as the devil after every session, and pretty soon you're just going to punk out. But if you make this thing a weekly thing, dude, you'll move past all that soreness, and you'll start getting stronger and stronger every time you come. So I just want to say thank you to all of you for starting this healthy habit. We're glad to have you here. Let's make it a weekly thing all year long. And let me also say we're kicking off our 2020 New Testament challenge this week. Uh, as a church, I want to invite you to, to read through the New Testament with me this year. Uh, we're going to read one chapter a day, five days a week, uh, starting in Matthew on January the 8th. That is today, all right? And if we do it today, we'll be able to get through the whole New Testament in 2020. Uh, you will have five days a week to read, the weekend to catch up if you get behind. And let me tell you how this works. You pray, Lord, show me something in this chapter today. And then start reading and pay attention. And one verse is going to pop up. One verse is going to stick out. So underline that verse in your Bible. Or if you're using the U version, you know, highlight it, uh, which, you know, you can take this computerized version of the Bible and download it on every computer and every device that you've got. And then I'm going to post the verse that hits me every day on Instagram at my Instagram account, which is TCAMHUX. Uh, and so if you want to, just join me on Instagram, follow that. Uh, and you'll see the verse that hits me and I'll see the verses that hit you. Uh, and we had hundreds of Compassion Christians post verses like this last year. Uh, and I just want to encourage you to join me reading every day. Friends, reading and praying for five minutes a day will kickstart huge spiritual gains for most of us. And I want to encourage you to start this week, chapter a day and pray. Uh, you're going to see the schedule on social media here. Uh, we're starting 
on Wednesday, uh, and, and we're going to be in Matthew 1 today. So if you want to get started, go home after this service and read Matthew chapter 1. Read chapter 2 tomorrow, chapter 3 on Friday. Then take a big breather over the weekend. We'll, we'll catch up on uh, Matthew chapter 4 on Monday. And then we'll go all the way through the New Testament. Now last week, <clears throat> we started a new series of messages that we're calling Blind Spots. And the operational premise for this series is that we all have spiritual blind spots. And the problem with a blind spot is you can't see it. But once it gets pointed out to you, well, then you know. And now you can do something about it. For example, last week we talked about the power of guilt and how guilt can cripple your soul and damage your relationships and rob you of self-esteem and rob you of joy, the joy of the Lord. Guilt can rob you of that. But thank God there's something you can do to get rid of guilt and you know what? If you missed that message last week, I want to encourage you to watch it on our website because it's really, really important. Today, we're going to talk about another blind spot that we see in other people all the time, but we never see in ourselves because it's too embarrassing. And it's the blind spot of jealousy. Everybody say jealousy. jealousy. Now, you know, when you think about jealousy, you think, what are, we, what are we in the fifth grade here? You know, adults never talk about jealousy. But it is a blind spot that can ruin your life. Listen, jealousy can rob you of ever feeling content. Ever. Jealousy can keep you from making friendships that might have blessed you your whole life long. I mean, jealousy is actually the opposite of love. Now, I know you've heard of 1 Corinthians 13 in the New Testament. It's the love chapter. It was written by the Apostle Paul. It's the most beautiful definition of love found anywhere in literature. But here's what Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Love is patient. Love is kind. Everybody want to say amen? amen. Love is not jealous. Anybody want to say amen? amen? I mean, we would all say amen to that. But unfortunately, jealousy is one of these blind spots that sneaks up on us. Somebody has said that jealousy is a feeling of discontent or resentful longing that's aroused by somebody else's possessions or qualities or luck. You know, William Shakespeare called jealousy the green-eyed monster in 1596. So it ain't new, but it poisons a lot of people. Jealousy and envy are almost synonymous in that they both are a form of coveting which made the top 10 commandments in the Old Testament, number 10, thou shalt not covet. Counselors say that envy is wanting what somebody else has. Jealousy is the fear of losing what you have to somebody else. But I'm just going to use the word jealous for both. Now, I tried to think of the first time I got poisoned by jealousy. And I think I was eight or nine years old. My dad brought me a bicycle, which I thought was awesome. He bought this old used bicycle from somebody for me and my brother. Let me tell you, they were not pretty, but they worked great. And we loved those bikes, man. We rode them everywhere. We jumped off ramps with them. They were awesome. We loved them. But one Christmas, you know, we had two cousins that lived about a mile down the road from where we lived. And our grandparents lived right in the middle. And so we would ride our bikes to granddaddy's house. And they would ride their bikes to granddaddy's house. And when they rode up on Christmas Day... They rode up on these two cool BMX-looking bicycles with gears. Gears, y'all. We had never seen anything like that before. I mean, big ape hanger, handlebars, metallic blue paint, cool wheels, and gears. Whew. You know, one minute before I saw their bikes, my bike was fine. My Christmas was fine. But when I saw what they got, I felt poisoned. By discontent. In fact, I had this resentful longing to outrun those two jokers on their cute little bikes and did. 
But man, I'm just amazed at how my good old bike lost its shine when I saw something else. Now, I don't think it's wrong to want to have a nice, shiny new bicycle. I don't think it's wrong to buy one or to enjoy one. But dude, if your attitude tanks because somebody else has got one, and I mean, you've got a bike, you just don't have what they got. You need to be asking yourself why this means so much to you. Why does rocking that ride or rocking that look or your team winning mean so much to you? You know, I was at the dentist this past week and my dentist goes to our church and, you know, he sat down right beside me with all those sharp tools laid out, you know, and he started telling me he's from Ohio and he loves football. And Ohio State was his team and, I'm like, really? And then he told me, you know, I never get really invested in these football games, but, but, and I usually really like Clemson, but man, last week at that bowl game, you know, when Ohio State jumped out in front, I was just so excited about that and so disappointed when Clemson stole that game in the last minute. Now, open wide, Pastor. <laughs> I was just thinking, Dabo, help me. Help, help my brother out. Anybody here ever struggle with jealousy? Oh, no hands? Like I said, this is hard to come clean on, Amen. Because it's embarrassing. And I wish I could tell you I'm over it. <laughs> but I'm not sure I am over it. I'm working on it. There's some spiritual disciplines that I'm telling you will neutralize this. And, and I've embraced those. But I do. let me just historically tell you on bad days in my life, the people I've been jealous of. I've been jealous of people who are more athletic than me. I'm really jealous of people who are smarter than me. That's, that's the thing I covet the most is intelligence. I, I, I've been jealous of people who are better looking than me. In high school, I was jealous of people who had a cuter girlfriend. Okay, any girlfriend. All right, any girlfriend at all. That was enough right there. I'm jealous, I've been jealous of people who can play the guitar and keys. I, I'm jealous of people who are really good with money. I'm jealous of pastors who are better pastors, better speakers, better writers, better leaders than I am. You know, I, I've been jealous of people who are great at confrontation who never shut down or use a silent treatment when they get mad. You know, they just get more articulate because they grew up in dysfunctional families. But anyway, let's just let that go. I've been jealous of movers and shakers with perfect hair. Listen, any hair, all right? You, you know the people with perfect resumes and perfect clothes and seem to do everything so effortlessly? People who seem to just have it all together. And if you're here today and you don't have a problem with jealous, jealousy, I'm jealous of you too, all right? Now, some of you ladies know exactly how this works. Man, you want a new kitchen. You've wanted it for years. You've prayed for it, planned for it, saved for it, sacrificed so you could have it. And now you got it and you love it. Dude, you love it. You are taking pictures of it. You're posting them everywhere. You're so happy until you go to a friend's house. And they had their whole house redone. And I mean, it looks like they moved Joanna Gaines in for a year, right? And I mean, it's like shiplap everywhere, man. Hashtag barn life. You get in the car and tell your husband, we got to remodel our whole house now. And he's like, girl, what are you talking about? We hadn't even paid off the kitchen yet. Oh, we got to do better than this. We got to do better than this. And you know, it's hard to understand why we feel this way. And then I read an Instagram post from Craig Groeschel that said, the fastest way to destroy something special is to compare it to something else. Now, you know what? My, what I had was fine until I saw what somebody else had. And friends, I'm telling you, in the history of the world, it has never been easier to look around than it is right now because of social media, right? I mean, you see a picture of a bunch of people having lunch on Facebook or Instagram and you realize, wait a minute, those are my friends. How come they didn't invite me? <laughs> or, or you see a picture of people on vacation and you're thinking, that's their second vacation of the year. 
I mean, we could barely go to grandma's house for Christmas and they go and snowboard. Sound like somebody needs a little Dave Ramsey in their life to me, y'all, I'm telling you. <laughs> well, then, then there's that classic picture, you know, uh, of the pool and their feet and the book they're reading. You know what I'm talking about? Hashtag blessed life on the bottom, right? And I look at that picture and I think, I don't like that book. I don't like that pool. I don't like your feet. You know why? Because something's happening for somebody else that's not happening for me. Now, I love the way somebody said, you know, we compare other people's highlight reels to our blooper reels. And it makes life feel unfair to us. Have you ever thought that? Life is unfair to me. You know what that really means? Jealousy is saying, God, you've been unfair to me. I think God has been unfair to me. God has not done right by me. God has been better to other people than he has been to me. Dude, jealousy is blaming God because you don't have as much or as many or as beautiful or as rich. And did you think God has been unfair because, you know, as Andy Stanley says, you don't live in the land of Ur. You're not smarter and richer and prettier and healthier. And, and listen, you're not saying smarter than you were last year, which would be a good thing. I mean, that'd be growth. That'd be healthy, right? Jealousy means you, you want to be smarter than somebody else. And you got them picked out. They're a rival. That's somebody you kind of compete with in your mind. And I mean, honestly, I don't think there's anything wrong with competition. I mean, not in itself, unless you start to obsess about it. And when you obsess about it, you move from the land of Ur to the land of Est. Lord, I am not going to be happy till I am the smartest and the richest and the prettiest and the strongest. And if I'm not God, it's your stinking fault. You let me down. God, you ripped me off. God, you did me wrong. And then you get disappointed and depressed and bitter because you think God owes you something. You think God owes you something, and, and he's not delivering. You know, jealousy makes you think, why them, and why not me? Now, friends, this is a problem. And if you don't think it's a problem, let me remind you that the first time the word sin is used in the Bible, it was about jealousy. Jealousy and the bitterness and the envy that they cause. In Genesis chapter 4, we find the story of Cain and Abel. The, the first brothers. I mean, the first brothers. Man, God invents family and brotherhood, you know, so that we can know and live in love. But Cain did not love his little brother because he was jealous of his little brother. And when God saw this, God tries to intervene. And that's what he does with us, right? When we get on one of these weird tangents, he'll send some friends, send some words, send some message trying to intervene. And God tries to intervene with Cain. But no, no. Cain is so bitter that the first murder takes place. And Abel dies. And Adam and Eve's family is decimated. And Cain is condemned for murder. Why? Because of jealousy. Dude, jealousy is a dangerous blind spot. And let me tell you, the longer you ignore it, the worse it gets. So where do we go from here? <clears throat> what can we do to keep this blind spot from wrecking, listen, every relationship? 
every job, every marriage, every friendship. And, and then we pass that poison on to our kids. Well, thank God Jesus is coming to the rescue. Jesus is coming to the rescue. You know, there are a couple chapters in the Gospel of John. Open your Bible with me to John chapter 20, where Jesus is going to show us the antidote. He is going to show us the antidote for the macular degeneration of jealousy. And this is going to hurt y'all. So buckle up. All right. This is the story of two church leaders in the New Testament. Two men that you know and love and hold in high regard that it kind of looks like are struggling with a sense of compassion competition and jealousy and you're not going to believe who they are they are the apostle john and the apostle peter and i never saw this until this week when i read what rusty george said about this passage and he says and i agree that in john chapter 20 and 21 we see a quiet competitive spirit that could culminate in jealousy between peter and john so turn with me your bible to john chapter 20 who wrote the book of John? Anybody know the answer to that? John did. Now think about this. John wrote the book of John. And John talks quite a bit about the interaction between he and Peter and Jesus. And if you remember, John has a lot of these little ways of letting us know who sat closest to Jesus, who laid his head back on Jesus' chest, uh, who was Jesus' BFF, uh, all that kind of stuff, right? Now think about it. John refers to himself in the Gospel of John in the third person. He refers to himself in the third person. I've always thought that was an act of humility. But you know, when a celebrity does that, I find that annoying. And when an athlete does that, I find that annoying. And I wonder if Peter found it a little annoying. John doesn't refer to himself by name in his book. He calls himself the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. He wrote that. That's in his book. That's how he refers to himself. And I hope not, y'all, but you know, you wonder if he's kind of thinking, well, you know, years from now when Peter reads this, I just I want him to remember who is the closest to Jesus. You might be taller, bro. You might have been preaching on Pentecost, but I was closest. I was closest. And this story, listen, I'm going to read a story to you that was written by real people <laughs> who are dealing with real issues and honestly, friends, this is actually one of the reasons why I believe the Bible is inspired by God and totally reliable, totally reliable. Because I'm telling you, if a bunch of bright guys got together and just started making stuff up, trying to manipulate people, they would never put this story in the Bible. You would not write about the obvious imperfections of the key leaders of the New Testament. But the Holy Spirit has them do this. And that's, listen, that gives me hope. That gives me hope because I got my share of imperfections. Anybody with me on that? Amen. Anybody with me? Amen. And friends, passages like this remind us that these are real people who really need Jesus just like us. Can I get an amen? amen? So look at John chapter 20. And John chapter 20 is uh, Easter Sunday morning. But nobody knows it's Easter. They don't know that Jesus is risen from the dead yet. Matter of fact, they, they think Jesus is still in the tomb. They think Jesus has been murdered and Christianity is over. And then a bunch of ladies go out to anoint Jesus' body, which is already buried, just so they can get some closure. And they discover that Jesus' body is gone. And John is writing all this down so that, you know, and it's a few decades later, it's before the fall of the temple, I think. He's writing all this down so that we will know how the resurrection went down. So this is super important. But I want you to listen to what John writes, because this is a little bit funny, a little bit of humor in the Bible. So check this. 
John writes in John 20, verse 1, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and she found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance and she ran and she found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. Now think about this. John is writing this all down for people to remember the resurrection years and years and centuries and centuries into the future. But don't forget, y'all, don't forget the one he loved the most. And then it even gets better. It says in verse 3, Peter and the other disciple, the other disciple, who is that? That's John. And they start out for the tomb and they're both running, but the other disciple outran Peter <laughs> and reached the tomb first. So this is important. I ain't making this stuff up, y'all. How much of a guy is John? Right? Jesus rose from the dead, but he's faster than Peter, y'all. <laughs> I outran him. Don't forget that. Don't forget he rose from the dead. And don't forget I outran him to the tomb. And so, man, they run up to the tomb in verse 5. And John, John did get there first, but he was scared to go in. Peter rushes in. And John makes sure everybody knows he went in first. But I got here first, y'all. I'm the fastest disciple. I'm the one Jesus loves the most. Fast forward a little bit to the next chapter. Man, they've seen Jesus alive. He says, I'm going to Galilee. I'll meet y'all up north in Galilee. Meet me up there. And so in chapter 21, verse 3, they get to Galilee, can't locate Jesus. So somebody says, let's go fishing. And man, they just go fishing. And they fish all night, don't catch a thing. And then in verse 4, it says, at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who it was. They see somebody on the shore. And then that guy yells out, hey, friends, have you any fish? And they said, no. And then he said, well, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some, which if you're a fisherman, don't make a lick of sense unless somebody told you that before. Unless two or three years ago, somebody told you that same thing and you caught the most miraculous catch of your life. And that's what happened to these guys. Jesus had told them that, you remember, at the beginning of the Gospels. And so in verse 6, it says they did and they couldn't haul in the net because it had so many fish in it. And when the nets just load up and they catch this amazing catch, man, that's when they realize that's, that's got to be Jesus. Dude, that's got to be Jesus. Maybe they can't see him because of the mist on the water and all that kind of stuff. But then in verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord who saw him first. I just thought I'd make a note of that. The, Jesus, the disciple Jesus loved the most. He's the one who said it first. That is the Lord. John makes sure we know he saw it first. And then John writes, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic because he had stripped down for work. And then he jumped into the water and headed off the shore, put on his tunic. You know, you wonder if John, you know, John kind of a city boy thinking, you know, these country boys, Lord have mercy. He'd been working in his underwear all night. Good night. I'm glad he finally, when the sun came up, put that tunic back on. And maybe John's throwing him a bone. I can run him to death on land, but he is a better swimmer than me. i got to give him that. Of course, he is impetuous. I mean, he jumped overboard. He's undignified. But, you know, the point is, Peter didn't give, give a rip about any of that because he just wants to have a private conversation with Jesus because Peter's got unfinished business with Jesus. Amen? Do you remember the last words that Jesus heard Peter say before Jesus was crucified? You remember what those last words were? Peter loved Jesus. But the last words Jesus heard him say were, I swear to you, I do not know that man. Last words Jesus heard Peter say. Jesus had predicted it. He told Peter at the Last Supper, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, Lord, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> that ain't going to never happen. And then it did. And Jesus looked at him and the rooster crowed. 
and the guilt of his failure crushed him. And it says he went out and wept. He felt like such a loser. And then to make matters worse, Jesus is dead. And Peter is left with that guilt that those were the last words my friend, my Lord heard me say. But now Jesus is alive. And Peter sees this chance to confess and repent and just make this thing right. And so he's not waiting for this boat. He jumps in the water. He swims to shore. He wants to meet Jesus so he can have a private conversation before everybody else gets there. And man, while everybody else is bringing the boat up and hauling them the huge catch of fish and having breakfast, apparently Peter and Jesus take a walk. And in verse 15, it's that famous restorative conversation. Man, I've been to the spot. Some of y'all have been with me to the spot where this conversation took place, where Jesus asked Peter, a question. Peter, do you love me more than these? And, and you know, we can't tell in verse 15, he's talking about the fishing business, or he's talking about his disciples. We can't tell what he, exactly he's talking about. But Peter is so glad Jesus is bringing this up. He's like, man, I have got to clear the air. I've got to get this right. Jesus, Jesus says, do you love me more than all this stuff? And, and Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, good. And I want you to feed my lambs. That's kind of a crazy response. And you think Peter's got to be thinking, what exactly does he mean by that? But you, we know. I mean, 2,000 years later, we're looking back. We know exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, Peter, not only am I going to forgive you, bro, I'm going to give you an opportunity. No, I'm going to give you a responsibility. I'm going to give you a burden of leadership from this moment on. Dude, you are going to be taking care of the young spiritual lambs of my kingdom. Man, when, when the opportunity comes up to preach to the Jews in Jerusalem and lead those first Jewish people to Christ and baptize them into Christ, Peter, you're going to be God doing that in Acts chapter 2. And then when we go after the mixed race Samaritans, you know, and we lead them to put their faith in Christ, Peter, you're going to be the guy that takes care of that in Acts chapter 8. And then in Acts chapter 10, you know, when the Gentiles, the Roman soldier, gives his life to Jesus and is baptized into Christ, and everybody freaks out. And Peter says, no, this is the will of the Holy Spirit. Peter, you you're going to lead that too, bro. Peter, not only am I going to forgive you, I'm going to give you this awesome leadership responsibility. Peter, I'm going to use you to build my church. I'm not going to build my church on you. I'm building it on me. But you're going to have a huge role to play. And you know Peter's got to be thinking, thank you, God. Praise the Lord. He, he has not only forgiven me, now he has commissioned me. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you. And in verse 16, Peter, Jesus asked Peter again, so, so do you love me? And Peter's probably thinking, well, you know, I thought we'd already kind of covered this, but Lord, yeah, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, well, take care of my sheep. And in verse 17, a third time, Jesus asking Peter, do you love me? Do you, buddy? And that third question hurts Peter a little bit, but then he gets it. I denied him three times. And so he's asking me three questions. And he's given me three opportunities to affirm my love for him and affirm my commitment to what he's doing in this world. And so once again, Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus gives him again that world-changing mission. Bro, I want you to feed my sheep. And let me tell you what it's going to cost you. Before you say yes, let me tell you what this is going to cost you. In verse 18. I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do what you liked. You dressed yourself, you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands. What's he talking about? He's talking about the same crucifixion they just saw Jesus go through. People gonna, other people are going to dress you. They're going to take you where you don't want to go. Where did Peter die? Rome. 
How did he die? Upside down on a cross. Asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified like Jesus. John goes on to record in verse 19, Jesus said this, to let him know, to let Peter know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then Jesus told him, Peter, follow me. In, out. Yes, no, tell me right now. And Peter says, yes. You wonder where John is, where all this has gone on, right? Look, look what the scripture says in verse 20. Peter turned around and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. <laughs> he right there. <laughs> I mean, every, Peter's having his moment with the Lord. Everybody else is having breakfast and John's just lurking. I mean, he's just kind of, he kind of eavesdropping on the conversation. They look back, hey, y'all, I'm here. I'm right here. And you know, this is so great because they interact almost like brothers. I mean, John and, and Peter are not brothers, but they almost act like they are. Look at verse 21. Peter looks at John and says, Lord, what about him? Now you got, why him, right? I mean, you got me leading and feeding these sheep and taking care of your little lambs and dying on the cross. And I'm glad to do that. But I just need to know, is John working for me or am I working for him? How's it going to go? I just want to know right now. Now, if he's going to be doing something greater than me, that's okay with me. I just need to know. I'm good with whatever you want to do. But Lord, why don't you just tell us right now, why him? What about me? How's this going to work? Look at your Bible. Jesus does not answer that question. Jesus has got a great habit of not answering stupid questions. Can I get amen? <laughs> we ask a lot of them and he don't answer them. But what Jesus says next is so brilliant and it is so powerful and it is perfect for helping Peter and John deal with this competition and this jealousy. And it's so perfect for helping us deal with the jealousy in our lives. Look at what Jesus says in verse 22. Jesus answered, Peter, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. Amen? Amen. Say it with me, everybody. Big boys, come on. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Peter, no matter what I choose for John or anybody else, you just got one job, bro. You're going to follow me? You're not going to follow me. Make up your mind. Tell me right now. Peter, if I want him to be greater than you, what is that to you? If I want him to be more successful than you, what is that to you? If I want him to write more and I want people to remember him longer, long after you're gone, dude, what is that to you? Your job is to follow me and not worry about John. And it's just like Jesus is saying, Peter, man, I love you. But before I can use you in any amazing way, you've got to get something straight in your head. I don't work for you. You work for me, right? Let me hear you say it. Yes, sir. Peter, I don't owe you anything. You owe me. You owe me for salvation and forgiveness and purpose and eternal life and every blessing every stinking day. I don't owe you a thing. You don't deserve anything but hell. You owe me, right? Let me hear you say it, right? Because I can't use you in any profound way as long as you are confused about who is the Lord. 
Peter, I have the sovereign authority to use different people in different ways because of reasons that you will never understand until we all get to heaven. And so how I choose to use John, that is my sovereign will. What is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. Jesus is helping Peter and me and you get our head right about jealousy. I mean, dude, think about this in the context of your life and mine. Now, you're looking around at somebody else at work and they keep getting all the promotions and you're just trying to do a good job, but it never seems to work out that way for you. What is that to you? You do what Jesus wants you to do. Think about your family. You know, you got this brother-in-law and I mean, this guy is bright and smart and handsome and he's getting everybody's attention and he's making the big bucks and he's always talking a big game and got free tickets to the Masters every year. What is that to you? You got this neighbor and she just keeps getting all the attention and everybody's talking about what a great mom she is and how thin she is and, and her kids get scholarships and everything. What is that to you? You follow me, Jesus would say. Every single one of us has somebody in our life, somebody at work or at home or down the street or somebody from our past. And man, every time you hear something's going super well for them, something inside you just churns. And you start thinking, why them? And why not me? And friends, we all struggle with this. But let me tell you what the bottom line is. Whose opinion is going to define you the most? Whose opinion is going to define you the most? For some of us, we are living for the approval and opinion of somebody. They're never going to get it. They will never get it. You're looking for encouragement from a dad who is dead and gone. Man, you, you, you're waiting for an I'm sorry from some ex-spouse who is never going to have the character to say those words. Man, you're living through the lens of everybody else. And I think the Lord Jesus would say to you, what is that to you? You follow me. You know, the person who wrote the book of Hebrews gives us a great analogy in Hebrews chapter 12. You know, from when we're trying to get a handle on jealousy, he starts that chapter out. I love this chapter. Therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses in heaven who are cheering us on, man, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And man, let us run with perseverance. The race has been marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on your brother-in-law. No. The house down the street. No, the lady at the office who keeps getting your promotions. No, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and endured, endured its shame, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what, Jesus, you know what the author of the book of Hebrews is saying? There's a race, bro, and you're in it. But it ain't against the people next to you. It's a race toward Jesus. And man, if you know anything about running track, you know the quickest way to lose the race is to start looking at the people beside you and take your eyes off the finish line. So fix your eyes on the Lord and run toward Jesus. You know, maybe every time you and I struggle with jealousy, maybe you just in your mind need to hear the words of Jesus. You know, the, the voice of Jesus say these words to you. Stay in your lane, man. Stay in your lane. Maybe you're not going to have the biggest business around. Jesus never promised you that. Did Jesus ever promise you that? No. But if you're a good parent and a good spouse, you've been in integrity at the office, dude, that's great. Stay in your lane. Maybe you're not going to look like somebody down the street. Or you're not going to look like you looked 20 years ago. Or you're not going to look like everybody else appears on Facebook and Instagram. You're just trying to be a person with inner character and moral beauty. 
to death. That's awesome. Stay in your lane. You may be single. And you know, you hear all the time, your friends talking about how they're hooking up with everybody and they're on Tinder and they're swiping right and going on trips and they have no morals and don't give a rip. And here you are trying to maintain spiritual and moral purity. Dude, that's awesome. That's a holy thing. Stay in your lane. Maybe you're looking at other people's families and kids and why everybody's always talking about them and you're just trying to be a good parent. Man, that's faithful. That's faithful. Stay in your lane. What's going on in other people's lives? What is that to you? You must follow Jesus. Amen? Amen. Now let me just tell you three things that have helped me with jealousy. These are spiritual disciplines that have helped me. Number one, fast from social media regularly. Say it with me, everybody. Fast from social media regularly. You know, if the first thing you do every morning is check your Instagram or Facebook, then chances are it's going to be all about you trying to keep up with everybody else all day long. Why don't you check the New Testament church? Can I get an amen? Check, check the New Testament first. Why don't you let God speak into your life before you start looking at the highlight reel from somebody else, you know, who's going to start slanting the way you think. Now, if you're on social media and you start fasting, you will freak out. You will freak out at first. Kerry Newhoff says that the average person touches their phone 2,617 times a day. Heavy users, 5,427 times a day. Now, if that's you and you start fasting from that, you're going to get the jitters. And you're going to look at your phone sometime and go, what am I supposed to do, just call people on this now? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm telling you, it's scary how jealousy and FOMO, you know, that fear of missing out, can drive us to obsess about what other people are doing. So maybe you ought to just shut it down sometime. Here's number two, keep a gratitude journal. Say it with me, everybody. Keep a gratitude journal. Friends, we're all good at counting other people's blessings, but we're not so good at counting our own. I want to encourage you to get a journal like this. Keep it with you every day until you see Jesus. Put it by your bed. And every night when you put, before you put your head on the pillow, you open this thing up and you write down one blessing that came from God to you today. Just make it a discipline every night. And maybe it'll be something small. I got the 10-pack from Zaxby's, and there was 11 wings in it. Yeah! <laughs> now listen, if you wrote down three little goofy things like that a day, you would thank God for a 1,000 gifts in 2020. And my friend, that would change your attitude. My buddy Danny Falligan, his wife Carol died in December. Dana Harvey, Dana and John are members of our church. That's Dana's mom. I talked to Danny a day or two ago, and he told me <clears throat> about how God is carrying him through the valley of the shadow of death, and he's trying to journal that. He's just trying to write down every day what God did to carry him through the valley of the shadow of death. And I told him, I said, Danny, that practice will keep you focused on Jesus, and that journal will be a treasure to your kids one day. Now, here's the third thing you should do if you struggle with jealousy. Buckle up. Y'all ready? Celebrate the person you envy. Say it with me, everybody. Celebrate the person you envy. Now, I know you, some of y'all threw up in your mouth a little bit, so let's say it one more time. Y'all ready? <laughs> Celebrate the person you envy. Friends, this is the antidote. <laughs> this, this is the antidote for jealousy. When you decide, I'm going to be the bigger person. I'm going to pray for their success. I'm going to congratulate them on social media. You know, when somebody says, like a friend of mine told me on Tuesday, Cam, your son's Ghost Shift album is awesome. My boys and I play that music every day. When somebody tells me something out about my son, you know what I say? Thank you. Thank you for letting me know. 
Now, he didn't mention he played my sermons every day. Okay? He didn't say anything about that. But he's playing my son's music. Now, you know why I say thank you when somebody compliments somebody else? Because I love my sons. I want them to do well. I have no envy, no jealousy. Every win for them is a win for me. Man, what if we would all choose to be that person? Especially with our rivals. Especially with the people that we compete with. I mean, what if we were the person who always speaks an encouraging word? Friend, I'm telling you, that simple act of celebrating when it is the hardest to do, instead of becoming bitter, or, you know, trying to elevate yourself by ripping them down, that discipline will break the power of jealousy in your life and eradicate the blind spot. Stay in your lane. Because what is it to you what Jesus does in somebody else's life? You must follow him. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for sharing all this stuff with us, Lord. Thank you for putting these embarrassing details in about two guys that we love, two guys that you love, two guys that I'm sure grew out of this at some point. But Father, I'm thankful that we grow out of stuff too. We grow out of it when we see it, we acknowledge it, we repent, we confess, we start taking steps. And I pray, God, that we'll be doing that. Many, many, many of us will be doing that about this issue of jealousy, that we will become the most encouraging people in the world, that we will encourage people, Lord, when it's hard to encourage them. And, Lord, we'll feel our soul get stronger and healthier and deeper and wiser as we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.